Hey, you're listening to Block Thinking with Werner Puchert. Well, that's December 2018. December 2018. Nearly missed the English there. Yeah, it's winter, peering out the window, freezing my ass off. But there's two good things connected to this whole situation. Number one. It's nearly time for Christmas presents. Hope the wife is listening. And then hot wine. Love, love hot wine. We'll be consuming a lot of it. Um, yeah, hot wine. Then, big favor. If you're listening to this, I would really appreciate your feedback. We've been doing the show now for just over a year, over a year. And I realize we talk about design all the time and I've never done research. I really want the show to resonate with folks that look after me here in central europe i want to serve the design community here i want to make sure that the contact makes sense i don't want to waste anybody's time hell like when someone's commuting and listening to me waffling on i sure as hell don't want to waste your time especially with all the other awesome content out there so please if you can head over to blockthinking.com so it's b-l-o-c thinking i wish we didn't leave the k out but we did if you go there there'll be a little form I promise you I'm not tracking you. I'm doing all kinds of dodgy stuff with your data. I just want to know what you think. Maybe have a few suggestions just to shape the show as we head into January. And then it's probably going to be the last show for the year. I need to take a break. I'm missing weeks. I'm only releasing every three weeks. I realize that I need to take a little bit of a break, regroup, and then get back into January. But that being said, because I'm a horrible planner, I've got something up my sleep. There might be... We are working on something. Jonathan is helping me. Jonathan Gull, co-founder. Um, we might have a bonus episode coming your way. It's awesome. It's going to be, I don't want to swear. It's going to be interesting. So stay tuned. Um, more on that. Then you can also go to the world's worst run Facebook page, Block Thinking on Facebook. Um, I'll have the link to the actual survey there as well. Um, and uh, follow us there. Uh, don't expect a lot of content because I'm shite. And then, yeah, this week. So this week, um, I have Marina Tartarian. She is awesome. Uh, she is everything uh, connected to service design. She's an experienced designer as well. Um, and we talk shop. I've been friends with her for a few years now. Never had the chance to really sit down and talk to her. And you'll probably hear that because the conversation went all over the show. And we spoke about jazz music. We spoke about her grandmother. Um, she's got some awesome book recommendations right to the end of the show and she speaks about bravery i think we all need a little bit of bravery um yes so let me shut the hell up wish you guys all the best for the festive season and yeah here's marina barev that means hello in armenian my name is marina tartarian and i am a service and experience designer from armenia living in los angeles I run a boutique agency called The Why Lab, and I'm also the host of the Why Service Design Thinking podcast. Let's rock and roll this, man. Marina, what is your value proposition? The closest thing I can think of right now is, uh, I'm going to use an analogy because I love analogies. I think my value proposition is that I am a funky rainbow. And if you think about what is a rainbow, what's the purpose of a rainbow, um, it's made up of many different components and they're each super clear and they're, you can take each of them and it can be a beautiful thing on its own, right? You can take one color and splash your entire room with that color and it makes sense individually, but it makes even more sense together. And basically that's the inside of my brain. That's how I think about everything really. You know, I look at individual pieces and I bring individual pieces at depth and then I combine them all together for the whole rainbow effect and then end to end. And also rainbows are just fun and unexpected and no one, no one ever gets annoyed when they see a rainbow, right? You always smile and it's like this extra spark. Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood, right? You talk about Aminia, travel, university and all these magical things. <laughs> So I like to say that I grew up in Los Angeles, Armenia, because I'm, I'm from Armenia. I was born there, but I moved to LA when I was a kid. Um, but I, I did, but I didn't. You know, I, I lived in America and I went through the public education system. Uh, but then when I came home, I was in Armenia. I was very much in those mindsets. I had to learn how to navigate between the different worlds. And what does, what does it mean being in Armenia? For a, for a complete layman. <laughs> 
you know, it's, there's a lot of cultural differences, right? There's uh, a lot of backstory. At that time, Armenia was a Soviet country and they had just switched over to democracy. So there's a lot of mindsets that come with it. Um, the Armenian genocide was a thing. So it was a couple generations before me, but my family had experienced that. So it was still a lot of that trickle down effect and the mentalities and, and people learning how to survive and then then trying to reach up back to a ground level and then learning how to thrive beyond that. So, you know, and also trying to navigate between a lot of the, the cultural differences of the U.S. because a lot of it was very different. Like I grew up watching American TV shows thinking, oh, it's not like this in my house, you know? Yeah, it's like these extremes, right? On one hand, the American culture and then this Armenian influence. It very much is. And it worked the other way around too. For example, a lot of people that I think moved to different countries, um, there's a lot of hope and optimism. And so a lot of their lives are defined by this, this hope. Um, and that's, you know, and that's a new spark that they bring to the, the culture that they're coming into. So when my family moved, they very much had these wide-eyed big dreams, like they came to LA to make it. And so they brought that enthusiasm, that willingness to work really hard and do whatever it takes and be scrappy. So it's it's been really interesting. And it didn't make sense until I was, you know, in my teens and 20s and really started to understand human psychology and understand cultural differences and just process all of what I had done. Because going through it, you don't know, you just feel like you're crazy all the time because it, nothing ever makes sense. But and I thought I always thought it was a curse. But I realized later that it ended up setting the stage for me as a designer because I could navigate anything. I could just be placed in the middle of any world and learn how to observe at depth enough to not only navigate it, but to contribute to it, to help it thrive, to help myself thrive in that situation. So it was kind of a it was a really good thing that happened for me. I mean, it's I'll never be able to repay my parents the kindness of bringing me to this place that was terrifying for them. Amazing, man. And have you ever been back to visit the, the old country? Or I have. You know, I've been back a bunch of times. I still have half my family living there. So, um, you know, I have, I have cousins and, and they've got families and um, I speak with them often. I'm actually, this year I've been thinking a lot about um, going back there and doing some design things for them. I'm not sure yet what that looks like, but they're really going through a beautiful time right now where they just had this very peaceful revolution. Um, it's been in the news a lot earlier this year. And so they're very much looking forward to progress. And I think it's such an exciting time to be there. And I, I'm kind of driven to contribute. I'm enthused by everything that's happening. And I'm thinking about, you know, how can I go there? What can I do? How can I bring back what I've gathered from all these other beautiful places and kind of help them through what they're going through. Man, that's an interesting thought to do that, right? Because if I look at what what you've achieved, I'm sure you still have to achieve a lot more, right? You're not dying yet, but the, all the experiences that you have done and all the things that you've done up to this point and achieved, if you can take that back in some way contribute, that that's a really interesting and uh, refreshing thought. Yeah. And there's a lot of really cool people who have done it. Um, and I'm really inspired by them. Um, I, I love the story of Alexis Ohanian, who co-founded Reddit. One of the first things he did when he sold Reddit was to go to Armenia and, and contribute to that community. And he goes back and forth all the time. So I love seeing stuff like that. Um, and Serge Tonkian from System of a Down. There's, uh, there's a lot of people. Charles Aznavour, he died recently from the recording of this podcast, uh, before the recording of this episode. Um, and he was always a big champion you know, he was always very half and half. He lit, he grew up, his family escaped to France um, after the genocide. And he said he was 100% French and 100% Armenian. And that, yeah, that very much inspires me. It's not half and half. It's it's really, you can be all, you can give it, give it your all both ways. No, for sure. I mean, I feel as much affinity to Poland as to South Africa. So it completely resonates with me as well. I mean, I want to be here. I want to be in the culture, but then also I don't want to give up and I don't think I have to give up what is back at home. So yeah, I think we're on the same page there, definitely. Yeah. And you know, the reason I think this is important now is kind of I'm kind of cheating into some of the conversations we'll have about design um, in a bit. But the reason I think this mindset and understanding and learning how to navigate this is critical is because this is the new norm for our world, right? My experience is not unique by any means. Yours is not unique. So much of us are kind of cross uh, what's the word? I don't know. Cross-pollinating. We're just, we're crisscrossing the world. And 
it's changing everything we know about society. You know, I look at something like elder care, which is a topic that I'm really passionate about because I grew up with my grandma as my best friend for many years. And I look at what is elder care as we know it or aging and retirement as we know it is you live in a place, you're born in a place, you live, you build assets, you, you know, build a life for your retirement. But what does that look like when we're crossing countries, you know, when we're doing it either out of necessity, um, like my parents did, or, uh, you know, out of choice, like you and I are doing, and how do societies react to that? We're so used to, well, you didn't pay taxes in this country. Why would you try to retire here? Or why should this country take care of you? Um, but it doesn't work that way. We're, we exist in one world and our society and our businesses and our governments really need to address that and really create a better world cumulatively as a whole. Pretty interesting. But there's something else you mentioned, right? And I had, a, I had, a, I made a note of it because it pops up every now and then, now and again as your grandma. And let's add some jazz music to that as well. If you can talk a little bit about your passion about your gran and then your music background. My grandma, if anyone knows me, they probably have seen a ton of posts and quotes that I throw up about my grandma. Um, online. She's, she is on my mother's side. And when we moved to the US, one year later, she moved for the sole purpose of taking care of my brother and I, because we were young and my parents basically had to work like 20 hours. They were working, you know, garbage jobs at gas stations, at jewelers, like doing crap work just to get on their feet. And then at nights they were going to school to learn English. Um, my mom was trying to revive her medical license, which she had in Armenia, but she had to do a bunch of work to get it transferred to the US and get the equivalent. Um, so they were basically running nonstop, right? And someone needed to hang out with us and make us food and because my brother and I were kids. And so my grandma just left her life and just relocated to Armenia and took nothing but a couple suitcases of clothes and took care of us. And that set the stage for, for a lot of things. Um, you know, she's, she's a character too. If you meet her, it'll make a lot more sense. From your posts, right? I always get this feeling <laughs> that this is a kind of character. This is something, this is a very unique human being. She's very kooky. Uh, she used to be a school teacher and she was the one that, you know, everybody loved. She was always making jokes. She has a very uh, quirky sense of humor, which is where my brother and I get a lot of our humor. Um, she, because of her, I now have the sense of humor of, uh, you know, an 80 something communist era Armenian lady. So a lot of people don't get my jokes, but old ladies get it. But the thing about her that I think resonates with me and just is like, um, and, and with really the people around me is that she has this optimism about the world and, you know, she, she never gives up and she never lets anybody give up. Um, recently for her birthday this year, I was reflecting, she gave me her wedding ring. She has Alzheimer's now. So her memories is slowly fading and she's, it's about to, you know, it's about to get a lot worse. But a couple years ago when she was a little more lucid, um, she had this wedding ring with, uh, with her husband that she was with for like several decades, so 60, 70 years, something like that. Um, she slipped it onto my hand and she was like, you know, I, there's, this is no use to me when I'm dead. I want you to carry this on. And it was, it's the only object that she's kept since the day she got it. Everything else she's had to let go of, you know, or lose because when she moved and, you know, when she was a kid, she had a very unstable life. Um, and it, this ring represents so much and I wear it. So everyone assumes I'm married. Um, and I wear, wear this ring every day because it's such a way of keeping her spirit alive. Man, that's powerful. Yeah. Somebody convinced me to write a book of all her quotes. So I'm, I'm doing that and I'll release it at some point. Um, and she says goofy things, you know, she's like, every time I used to complain as a kid about something, she'd be like, yeah, yeah. A bad dancer blames his balls for getting in the way. Just, just dance, just go do your thing. Yes. More grand. <laughs> Grandmas, please. And then you have this insatiable hunger for music. First thing that I wanted to be when I grew up was a jazz violinist, specifically the first famous female jazz violinist, because at that time there wasn't really one. There weren't many people to look up to. There was, uh, you know, Stefan Grappelli, who um, was a French violinist, and he kind of brought, um, and Jean-Luc Ponty a little bit, um, they, they kind of brought jazz violin to the forefront, but there were no clear role models like, you know, what Ella Fitzgerald uh, did for jazz, that kind of thing. And I started playing when I was a kid. The other side of my family, um, they're all musicians, and they grew up through the very rigorous conservatory system um, in Armenia. So one side was musicians, and the other side were extreme arts patrons. So 
you know, I learned technique on one, one side uh, from my dad, and then I learned how to appreciate music from my mom. She would always take me to operas. I was like a 10 year old going to operas and jazz clubs and wow. obscure French concerts. That made for a very rough childhood because nobody else got it when they were listening to Backstreet Boys. And I was, I was What's wrong with this kid? <laughs> listening to Mirel Mathieu. But um, um, so because of that, I've always had this, this love for music. Um, and my early career was actually in the music education industry. So I've always brought that. I've, I've, a lot of my early progression, I went from producing underground jazz and hip hop shows um, to producing large scale festivals to being a music journalist. Um, and then settling into music education for a few years. And then when I started my business, the Y Lab was originally meant to be a marketing agency, a full service marketing agency for music um, and music educators. And then slowly, you know, I transitioned out because I, I love music, but there's so much more that I want to do. But I've been really realizing that music is a great analogy for innovation and creativity and collaboration. And I'd like to really explore that dialogue and what that looks like and what can we learn from music and how musicians work together because when it works well, it's beautiful. And I think that being a designer and also being a facilitator, and because I can see the things that, right, I can see the connections that aren't always obvious to other people, I see that and I, I watch it play out. No pun intended. Because I wanted to ask you, like, how do you see the influence of music and, and your background actually come to the fore in your design process and, and, and teaching design and, and some of the projects you've created? So jazz is where my heart is. And one of the things that I love about the jazz community and collaboration is if you, if you ever look at how a jazz group plays together, it's a really beautiful exchange of how people... Um, leave space for each other and how people fit into one another's skill sets and sounds, but also how they have, they have something that's a solid base and then they add a level of creativity to it. It's, just, it's so many different things going on at once um, that I think we can really learn a lot from because when I do creative ideation sessions or, or uh, synthesis sessions or Really, let's, okay, let's be honest, any sort of creative conversation, design conversation, um, there's a lot going on, right? And how do you manage keeping a consistency so that we're all speaking the same language and talking about the same thing? So that would be the equivalent of a rhythm section that has something going. Or it would be the equivalent of standards, jazz standards, which are songs that most people know how to play. Um, then when you where you come into it kind of speaking that same language and then you've all read the same book so you can talk about the same book um, you know you all know the same songs and you can talk about the same songs so that's a lot of what the the tool sets that we use in design or the, the ways we lead conversations that's where that comes out um, but then you leave room you leave a lot of room for creativity right for that drive for that innovation and then how do you manage having a bunch of brilliant people with a bunch of amazing ideas and thoughts and uh, observations, how do you synthesize all of those to make something that makes sense? Because one of the things I see a lot in design conversations is that everyone thinks the brilliant things, but what do you do with that? Because at the end of the day, you still have to make sense of it all and move forward. And, you know, in jazz, if everyone just played and improvised the solo on top of one another, it would be chaos. It wouldn't be music. But just be a noise. Exactly. Yeah. So how do you make conversations into a song and not into just noise? I think I just found like a way to illustrate how I've felt about design for a long oh, time. Because we, because the thing is, what, what I have a problem with at the moment, what I've observed is that there is a lot of things happening in the design world um, where I come from where – the basics is in place, right? So, you know, the tools are there and, and we're following the process, but we're not doing any creativity. Mm -hmm. You know, the tools are given to give the answers. And once again, where what you just said that kind of really resonates with me is the fact that 
you need to leave room for this creativity because that that's where the originality happens, right? This is where you're going to let your band stand out. That's where the experience for the listeners are going to be beautiful mm-hmm. and unique and memorable. So there's, yeah. And there's, I, you know, I'm not the only one talking about this. Let me say this. I have this um, amazing friend from my jazz industry days. Uh, her name is Monica Herzig. She's a, um, she's an academic and a jazz musician. So she really lives it. And so she, has been exploring this topic from the musician perspective um, and she's looking at creativity and entrepreneurship. So um, I'm excited to, to geek out with her about this at some point. The other piece of the intersection of music that I've been thinking about a lot is this idea of being brave as a soft skill. So I did a music project and we're currently in the middle of a, a music project that uh, a music plus service design project called Brave Musician that is a curriculum for alternative skill sets or for for supplemental skill sets besides music technique. And I actually, one of the things I'm working on is kind of this whole write-up about how becoming a brave musician myself, I made me a better designer. Um, And this is a community of people who are into music. So not, not just professionals, but hobbyists and, you know, um, people who play music at, at many different levels. And so I thought if I'm going to work on this, I need to practice what I preach. So this is, this was actually one of the big triggers for me to get back into music very seriously and kind of set goals for myself and think, okay, I'm, I'm going to remain a hobbyist. That's not going to change, but, um, but let me get to a certain level. Let me get to get to a level where I can play this kind of music or jam with these kind of people. And this idea of being brave, even that word brave, I've been obsessed with um, for a long time. And I think that to be a designer, you have to be brave. It's more than just creative confidence, or maybe it's a supplement to creative confidence. But when you're brave as a musician, there are so many things that we don't we take for granted that we miss when we're not brave. So, for example, when I played as a kid, I was really shy. So, as a, I played violin, if you can imagine someone playing violin, like I, my shoulders were hunched and I wouldn't use my full hands. You know, I would play with my little bow towards the top and I would kind of be scrunched up. I couldn't reach the notes with my left hand because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't just dominating my violin. Um, I was afraid to play other instruments. I was afraid to play by ear because someone told me that you can't play by ear. It's like a gift that has to be given to you by a consortium of all the higher powers of all the world. They have to have like a board meeting and decide you can be gifted with the ability to play by ear. And if that doesn't happen, don't even bother. Um, that was some of the the messaging that, that a lot of people get early on. Um, and so I was afraid to just listen to a song and then attempt it on my instrument. Um, and when I started thinking about this idea of what does it mean to be a brave musician and what does it mean to be a brave person and a brave designer, um, I realized, okay, first of all, you can teach yourself to play by ear. You just have to know the steps and do it. Um, and then, you know, really try, um, and have manage expectations and, and understand, you know, I'll never be like, John Legend or whoever, but I can pick up a melody and I can play it and I can understand chords and and all that. The beauty of this, because you just triggered another thought, there's a, I'm going to have to edit like a magical voice into this spot. I was referring to Benjamin Zander, famous conductor, Um, also co-author of the book, The Art of Possibility. A link to the book and to the video that I was referring to is in the show notes. Go check it out. I think it's a New York-based conductor that talks about how people play music, uh, and he refers now, to uh, st- one cheek. Before we start, I need to do two things. One is I want to remind you of what a seven-year-old child sounds like when he plays the piano. Maybe you have this child at home. He sounds something like this. I see some of you recognize this child. Now, if he practices for a year and takes lessons, he's now eight, and he sounds like this. <laughs> the, nine-year-old, the nine-year-old put an impulse on every four notes. And the ten-year-old on every eight notes. And the eleven-year-old one impulse on the whole phrase. I, ne- I don't know how we got into this position. <laughs> I didn't say I'm going to move my shoulder over, move my body. No, the music pushed me over, which is why I call it one buttock playing. 
can be the other button. When you're not brave enough and you sit behind the piano and you're just playing the notes, um, that's one thing. But when you are brave and you live yourself into the music, and he says, like, he actually demonstrates the way you actually lift up and he's sitting on his one butt cheek and he plays. You can hear that. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a wonderfully talented human being, right? But when he lives himself in the music, it's just different. And I think in a way, what you're also saying is like, I, I imagine you with your, with your violin and that shy space, like hunched up. And then you, I mean, you probably have the same skill set and you're playing, but then when the bravery kicks in and you live yourself into the music, that's where the beauty comes, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, I love that. Please, <laughs> please send that to me. I'm going to, I'll put send you the, the link notes, yeah. and I'll, I'll post, I'll put it in the show notes because yeah. it's really, it's kind of a really also analogy for life, right? The, the bravery and and confidence and in you know through that it's not about being mm-hmm. um you know an asshole and trying to say hey look at me but it's the 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 beauty that you create through that is that what other people then can enjoy yes right rather than exactly yeah. and it's about the courage to try and to step outside yourself right damn yes Go yeah talk to that person yeah. sitting in the corner you know while on your during your field research that like no one else is talking to or Go immerse yourself and, you know, understand really a deeper level of empathy because you went and I don't know why skydiving is coming to mind. That has nothing to do with anything. But, you know, like go go do the thing that, that you might be afraid to do or that you wouldn't normally be called on to do because it better serves you as as you try to serve other people. Amen. Um, Amen to yeah, that. And, you know, make friends with everybody. That's what I love about designers, though. I feel like, I mean, you come in with a level of these skill sets to be a designer, I think. And this is always illustrated by the fact that every time I go basically to any country in the world ever, and I meet a designer, we're not afraid to make friends with each other immediately, oh, yeah. right? Like we can jump in and have a great conversation. And we're, we have a baseline level of, of enthusiasm and courage just to, to be a person and to be ourselves. Yeah. So I find that very fascinating and, and endearing. That's beautiful. But um, for a complete layman, because I'm also very, I mean, there's actually a very rich jazz t- tradition here in Poland. I mean, I've been to one or two um, shows. My wife dragged me hmm. there, but I mean, she didn't drag me. I went willingly um, and it's awesome. But for, for a layman like myself, uh, like, can you suggest a, a good uh, uh, musician or something somewhere how I can get into the, into the genre? Oh my goodness. Okay, that's a... <laughs> Can we do a second episode on that? Yeah, give me one. If I had to say a few... Oh man, uh, not to be not to be a purist, but I'm going to be a purist. I mean, Ella Fitzgerald yeah. is my, my heart and soul. Won't you come along with me Um, I learned English by listening to Ella Fitzgerald records. I still have the record that my parents smuggled into Armenia in the in the eighties because you couldn't just openly buy um, it's a lot a lot of things in Armenia at that time. Um, yeah. But they smuggled a bunch of jazz records from I don't know where, and I have I still have it. It's framed in my office um, of you know the Basin Street Blues, and I grew up listening to that. I think Ella is incredible, and her story is incredible, actually. You should, you should check out um, Ella Fitzgerald's origin story. Um, I actually got a chance to work with the woman who's basically fulfilling Ella's legacy. Um, Ella wow. created a charity called the Ella Fitzgerald uh, Charitable Foundation. And she, you know, the, uh, if you, you know, most people don't know this, but if you purchase Ella Fitzgerald records now, um, a big portion or, or all of the portion or all of the proceeds, I don't know, go to, to this foundation and they use it to support music and they wow. use it to support literacy because that was another thing that Ella championed. Um, and, and during my time in, in the jazz industry, I got to work with the woman who runs this foundation. Um, and she, you know, knew Ella and has all these amazing stories. Um, so it's not just that I love her music, but I think really understanding, um, Ella as a person is, gives a lot of insights to, 
was all deep and enriching. Thanks yeah. for sharing that. Now, I mean, what is really important uh, to do is to talk about service design. So we're going to get into that because you're super active, right? You are the cover person for <laughs> service design in my books, right? So I'll start this section with a quote. Basically, I love service design so much. I want to marry it and introduce it to my grandma. <laughs> Boom. So I started in public relations and copywriting, which was really heavy in the messaging and the communication piece. Um, and then as the internet evolved for business practices, um, I learned about digital marketing and I learned about all of the strategies and tool sets behind that and how you use that plus the communication element to engage people and to create communities and to create meaning in the world, to create a two-way dialogue between humans and business. Um, and going through that transition actually set the stage for me as a designer. Because first of all, I got to do basically any job you can think of in that space. Because I, you know, as my per my rainbow, I like to dive into things, master it, and then dive into the next yeah. thing and move on um, and learn so that I can understand the context as a whole. At the time when I was doing that and I was kind of in the middle of it, um, and especially too, when I started my agency, which was my dream job, I got to be an entrepreneur. I had an office and a team and like more projects than we knew what to do with. And there was a piece of me that was actually very antsy still because I wanted to do more. I wanted to create because I was getting all of this input with regards to how humans and businesses correlate and interact and how, how uh, businesses evolve and how uh, systems within marketing happen. I was just, I was seeing too many whole pictures and it was making me anxious because I wanted to go back into deeper into the value chain, further back into the value chain and now create things that I would be promoting. Um, and, and that was where design really clicked for me because I'm in service design and I, I call myself a service designer, but I do think of design kind of as a whole, as a creator of the world and the future around us, as, as a person who imagines the world as it could be, and then helps other people imagine that and, and bring it out and kind of make it a reality. Um, and service design to me is one of the best cumulative skill sets that allows you to do all of that. But there's, a, there's still a lot more that I think we're trying to reconcile as an industry between pieces of experience design and, uh, and product design and circular economy design and behavior design. And just, there's, there's so many different elements. So I'm sure that I'll be oscillating between all of these things. I, I do now to this day. What I understand from you is that you want to look at the whole structure from end to end so that when someone interacts with this product and the, the message that he gets, the experience that he gets when he's going through the whole thing. I mean, it sounds like I'm saying stupid, straightforward things, but we live in a world that loves to silo things. And there's, a, there's fundamentally still to this day, disconnects between these little, these points where people, you know, when you, when you have a certain promise that is made to you about a product and you get the actual product, then that is not really delivering. I think there's still a lot of opportunity in work there, but the fact that you're saying like, we don't have to classify everything. It's an end to end thing. There's a big picture to see here. Just, it's awesome. Yeah, you're so right. And I, I think part of what makes that I view, I now view marketing as a little bit of a gateway drug to design. Um, I mean, it has been right, like the visual design communications, you, you see a lot of uh, visual designers come in um, to design or a lot of similar principles apply. But I think marketing strategy and sales strategy and even copywriting, there are a lot of activities that happen or even in pieces of sales as well, actually, there are a lot of activities that happen in that space that are similar to the design space. So for example, um, you know, in-depth research, people did research under a marketing umbrella so that they could better understand people so they can better sell them crap. Um, but we do research so we can better understand people and then better make the crap that we're going to try to sell exactly. them. Exactly. Um, yeah. And yeah. that's where, that's what I think is really cool. And that's probably what made it difficult slash easy for me because in the early days I had, a, I kind of, um, uh, what's the word? I bootstrapped a lot of things. So obviously I learned on the job. I, I learned through education. I learned through mentors, but I also had to figure out a lot of stuff on my own. Um, because I wasn't necessarily in all the right spaces early on in my career. Um, and for example, I really loved immersive research. So this was not in my job description, but I would go hang out at music stores and talk to teachers. I would go to concerts of elementary schools, um, you know, beginning bands, 
you know, concerts in my neighborhood. I didn't have a kid there. I was that creepy adult that sat in the back and, you know, um, had no reason to be there because I wanted to immerse myself in these environments. Um, when I, uh, then transitioned from, from music to general business, I would go and be a pretend customer at places so I can understand people. Yeah. And, and I did that under a marketing umbrella, but then I realized actually we're, we're gathering this information, but what are we using it for? The other thing about digital marketing that make me in hindsight realize that this ended up being a big advantage for me was that I think the advent of digital marketing created or opened up the floodgates for empathy between businesses and humans. Um, you know, with social media coming out, now you could hear what everybody's thinking. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of that was learning how to manage that human to human communication and to understand what that means. So it was no longer just businesses telling things at people. It was now a two-way dialogue. And I think we still have a you know, some ways to go, but it really gave accountability to businesses to give a shit. I, I keep on forcing the conversation back to service design for a reason. Um, the reason the reason I di- want to dip into that is, is twofold. But in, in, in one part, and let's focus on one part, is that you're actually the host and creator of Service Design Thinking, a podcast that has been doing exceptionally well. I think it's on a hiatus at the moment, but it's really something that still draws a lot of attention, has traction, has made a lot of difference for the service design community. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Welcome to Why Service Design Thinking, the podcast that helps businesses do things better and do better things. Service design is one of the next big competitive advantages in business, and it is being used with great success by corporations and other large organizations around the world. But how can a smaller business... Yeah, you know, when I... This actually answers your question of why do I love service design thinking so much I want to marry it. Um, But part of my mindset about life in general is that if I find something that's amazing, my instinct is never to keep it for myself. Um, it, you know, it comes from this place of scarcity, like in, in Soviet Armenia, if you had access to like a bucket of fruits, you wouldn't just eat it all. You would just share it with everyone, you know? Um, so for me, when I realized and got deeper into design as a discipline and as, as a community, my immediate instinct was, it was like finding out that someone's giving away cookies I wouldn't just go and take a cookie and be done with it. I would go there. I would make sure everyone I know knows there's free cookies. And then I would grab 10 extra ones and bring it to you know everyone in my, in my neighborhood. Um, and that was kind of my intention with starting this podcast um, at, a, at a time when there wasn't a conversation. It was the first of its kind for service design podcasts um, that talked about service design and looked at the different elements of it. Um, and it's an interview based, so it's people that are way cooler than me and doing amazing things around the world. Um, but I feel really strongly about knowledge share. That's actually another great intersection of marketing and design too, because marketing too started with, you know, let's not hoard our knowledge. Let's really be generous with it and share it because that's the only way we can progress as a whole. And I saw what knowledge share did for the marketing industry. And I think we're starting to do the same for the design industry. And I love everything about that. You know, we're sharing tips and techniques and seeing how things work well. Um, because I think another part of why we need that is there's this great quote I love. I can't remember who it's by, but um, it's saying the future is already here. It's just not equally distributed. And I think there's cool things happening all over the place. You know, there's, there's great things happening in the government, uh, um, in the, the design and public sector of uh, Dundee, Scotland, we should be applying that in Los Angeles, California, you know? Um, there's there's these great service designers uh, in Barcelona that I've been hanging out with and they're doing cool things, you know, in, in their businesses. Let's, let's learn from that and apply it. Um, and I think creating a space for that was really important to me. And I'm right now I'm kind of recalibrating, well, what else do I want to add to the design conversation? Because there are a lot of really great conversations happening um, now and it's becoming a thing and I want to make sure that I get to provide value in a piece of it that's you know provide value from the pieces that might be missing or or what else what else can be really helpful yes and I'll I'll, I'll post a, a link to the to the show in in the show notes so people can go check it out I really recommend it 
there was recently something that you ran in LA. Can you talk a little bit about your activities around that and what that is about? Like I'm a complete oaf when it comes to these service design community things. You know what? Educate I, me. <laughs> First of all, no, you're not. Um, because you have a, a really kick-ass design experience and I think you're being humble and I'm going to call you out on that as a friend. Um, so I do, part of what I do at the Y Lab is that I want to make sure that design, that I'm not just being a designer, but I'm also helping grow the demand for design. This is kind of a, an entrepreneurial survival skill set, but you know, if I, I want to create the, I want to create the need for my thing or help people realize the need for my thing. And I want to create the, the world that I want to live in. So if I want my company to grow and be able to hire 20 of the kick-ass, most kick-ass service designers in the world, I want to teach more people about service yeah. design and, you know, like, and, um, and help expose people to that so that I then have a, a place to pull from. Um, or if I want to sell service design to a bunch of, you know, to, to people and businesses, I need to help them understand the value yep. because it's at a point where it's new. Yeah. Um, let me preface it with that, right? It's still new enough that not enough people understand why it's critical, not just some, I mean, it's easy to understand the value when you talk about it, but I think not enough people understand that sense of urgency that we need to be applying design ASAP right now to everything we do. And a lot of the service designers that I've spoken to, and I can attest to this, we don't like talking about it, but I sat on the business development side of things. I find it fundamentally really hard to sell in quotes, a service design project. Um, many of the clients that I've spoken to, like it feels too heavy or it involves too many stakeholders. Let's look at something small rather. Let's fix this small little thing. Is that something that you find as well? Or do you have advice for, for us poor sods having to go out and, and, and in the world and find business? I mean, you don't want to force business down people's throats, right? But trying to solve these problems where you can see it's a, it's an end-to-end problem. It's not like a little thing here. Like, yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, yes. And uh, that's something that I struggle with as well. And, and a lot of the industry struggles with as well. Um, there's a lot of people who have figured this out, I think way better than, than I have my, pr- we need to get them somewhere. Like I need to talk we to them. Do, you know what? <laughs> um, and we, you know, we do, I think part of things like the college or uh, there's a lot of great service design. Yeah events happening that bring this kind of knowledge, um, together. Uh, there's, there's great resources too. I can recommend my favorite being the book. This is service design doing, um, that I was, I can't believe these cool people let me hang out with them, but, um, I was on the editorial team for that. Um, and this is the best service designers that have like figured this out and, you know, know how to, how design fits in, in large organizations. Um, but my, the, my approach has been and I, unique, a little bit unique to me and also unique to the place where I have been at up until now, which is LA. Um, design has been in LA in different forms, but service design specifically has not. So when I started practicing it, um, I was the only service design only agency in LA. Um, and I, so part of what I did was I went back to the community and helped create knowledge of it. So I teach service design, um, locally. I run workshops and events all the time. I'm, uh, one of the organizers in, in the Los Angeles service design meetup group. So we do like book clubs and we host, uh, you know, large scale workshops. And most importantly, I'm, uh, the, one of the executive producers, some years I'm like, it depends on the year we assemble a different team each year, but I'm the consistent thread for the LA service jam, global service jam. So it's part of this global network where it's a weekend activity that happens Friday, Saturday, Sunday in over a hundred different countries around the world. And we gather people from the community and basically we teach design and we go through service design as a process and we solve problems within the community. So, you know, we'll, we'll actually teach people how to go out and interview local people and look at areas that they care about um, and then figure out some ideas of how to solve problems, understand problems, right? Distill them, synthesize. We, it's a really condensed version of the whole design process. Obviously, service design should happen over a period of, over a period of weeks or months. Um, but this is, is a teaser. It's to help people understand the value. But Yeah, you have to start somewhere, right? You have to do something. Yeah. Not, no. yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah. And within a weekend, people go from, zi- from nothing 
um, from just coming into a thing they have no idea what they're getting themselves into to creating like businesses and nonprofits and government and policy um, ideas and projects from scratch in that, in just that span of that weekend. And to me, that's really beautiful too. It kind of embodies that sprint mentality of how much you can really accomplish if you're committed and, um, and focused and guided properly through a thing. And I will say I got into service design because of the global service jam, because I was doing all of these activities that were design activities, but I didn't realize that they were part of this greater whole, that there was an industry around it. You know, I was doing design sprints in uh, the early 2000s before it was a public thing. Um, I was doing improv comedy for business in, in that, around that time when everyone thought I was being a weirdo and now it's a legitimate business activity. Yeah. And so service design was like, Oh, cool. You've been doing these things. It, yeah. Here you have, there's a home for it. And, and I'm not the only one who thinks this way, actually, as part of my, uh, the people that I've interviewed on my podcast and just designers I've met around the world, they're like, yeah, my brain worked a certain way. And then service design put a name to it and made it, it, it made me realize that there's, it's not just me. Let's, let's do this together. Yeah, and this brings me to the to the horrible question. I hate asking this, but I'm asking this because I think it's kind of a, a bit of a sink between your world and Central Europe and and where I'm from and my experiences is that I have to ask this, is that in your mind, if you have to describe service design in a few sentences, how what would what would your description of that be? Because I think we've we've loosely spoken about communication and design and UX and all these things, but at the core, like if you, if you had to describe service design, what would that be? My definition of service design is, I think it's this idea of doing things better and doing better things. So to me, it embodies the concept that service design is created for change and it can, and can create change and progress um, and create progress rather, but also it's to innovate. And I think that piece is really important because some of the dialogue I don't I don't like that focuses specifically just on on you know changes and doesn't look at service design is used to create these massive you know uh, moonshot types of uh, progress that's needed in the world. Um, and so this was the thing that really was close to my heart. So this is the the mo- the motto that I live by, the motto for my business and the whole thing. And I've been saying it, and and it resonates sometimes, and and in other times people ask for me to explain more. Um, and the pivotal point for me was I attended a service, um, a great service design conference uh, in Barcelona, and they had an activity where they had a giant board and you could write on a post-it what you think service design is. And so I just threw it out there. Um, that, and this is also, there's a, a visual to this, you know, the infinity loop. Yeah. So to me, that's what that is. It's, you know, doing, if you can imagine the words, doing things better, doing better things in the loop. Um, it makes a lot of sense. and. I just threw it out there and it was a kind of a, I guess a, a thing where they selected the host selected a couple that they thought were, uh, were resonant and had like some prizes and they selected mine and I was so touched and it was, it was a really, it was an important moment for me because to me that was kind of a moment of this industry resonating with the language that I'm speaking. And I like went into the bathroom and cried secretly because I was so touched that that it made sense to them. I get frustrated when people get hung up about definitions. That's why I hate asking that question um, because sometimes we spend too much time on trying to de- define the damn thing rather than doing the damn thing. And uh, I kind of scrolled past your your post and um, I thought, oh no, not again. And then I clicked on it and I saw your definition. I'm going like, okay, great. That is that is awesome. Let's move on. Like, and I'm saying this with like, and I think probably for you, you can feel the same way. For me, it's like for you, it's a, it's kind of a vindication. Okay, great. This resonates with the community. Now we can move on and just live this, right? Yeah. Now we can dive into it deeper. And it's kind of like the principle of advertising. The first, the purpose of a headline in an ad is not to sell your product. It's to encourage people to read the next line and then to, you know, read the next line or do the next thing until you sell it. And I think definitions are meant in this case to encourage people to understand the concept or to be intrigued by the concept. And then we can dive into, okay, it's a process. It brings back people together in the you know, front stage and backstage, and we look at blueprinting, and then you can actually talk about more of the in depth of what of what it is. But 
how do we make it make people understand how do i make my grandma understand it that's exactly my, man and i mean that's my gate you know my uh what's the word yeah you need um, to get grammy to understand service design right yeah for sure <laughs> that's my guide that's, if, if it makes sense to her then yeah. it'll make sense to everybody i'm going to use that in my design practice now it's like will marina's grandma understand that can you <laughs> We're both involved in this whole thing called the experience economy, experience design. And uh, we we've, we both attended the College of Extraordinary Experiences. I've mentioned it probably now 10 times in this podcast. But um, how do you feel or see the experience economy fit into or extend the service design or the, the practice that you have currently? What is the value in this whole thing of experience design or experience economy for you at the moment? That is an amazing question. And it's actually something I think about a lot. And it actually, that was one of the things that made me reopen up some of my boundaries as a designer or my definition or my purpose as a designer. Um, I think the experience economy is a brilliant conversation at, that we need to be having. And I'm really glad that this event and um, and Pine and Gilmore, who wrote the book, the book on it really brought it to the forefront. Um, but I, so I have a very specific opinion about experience design. I think there, that too, right, is just muddled in definitions. To me, there are two different ways to look at experience design. There's the experience of a service, which is thing like, you know, the experience of being at a bank or being in a hospital, something like that. And then there's experience as a service, which is something like Disneyland or immersive theater or, you know, events and conferences, things where you're paying money not to have someone do something for you or to you or with you, but you're paying money to go through a transformative process. Um, people don't go into a bank for transformation. I mean, they could, if you really, you know, look at it, they buy a house, it's a thing, uh, whatever. But but the experience as a service um, is a really fascinating piece to look at because that's where you can get into things like the hero's journey and you can get into artifacts and, um, you know, and iconography and, and all the things that, that take people on this journey. And I'm really excited to explore those pieces and have those separate dialogues and to really help people clarify their brains um, and see the possibility because there's a place for both of those things. But I'm, yeah, right. I mean, you, you know, and like the thing is one can't live without the other, in my opinion. They can't, but they're also very different conversations. So Marina, I've got a special question for you from a mutual friend because I've got this thing in the in, in my show that where I've got the pay it forward question. And this question is from our friend Paul Bulencia. How do you define success in experience design? He had experience design, so I'll be fair to you. I will say, how do you define success in design? That's an excellent question. Thanks, Paul. To me, anything is successful if you've in integrated kindness and generosity and if that has come out in in whatever you're doing and i think you can design for that i think you you can design for generosity or for for human to human or human to nature or human to animal connections where there's something more that exists in the world because you happened or because you did this thing you know you've made someone's day better or you added value to the world for for having been there Gather around, kids. It's story time. You can't see it, right? But I've got an old user experience deck in my hand that has all kinds of story challenges. So what I do is I randomly uh, draw a card for you because you're not here, so you don't get to draw one. And on the card, there's a little little challenge. Um, uh, and then you need to tell a story about the challenge. Like I'll give you the thing now. And it can be true. It, it, you can lie. It doesn't matter. It's just about you telling us a story right? So here's the challenge. Tell a story about a time when you were scared. Um, nobody will ever believe this about me, but there was actually a time when I was a kid when I didn't talk. I was afraid to talk to people. Um, it was some somewhere in my early you know, transition days when I moved to the US, but you can imagine being a weirdo who likes jazz and obscure art and just a series of things that, you know, in, in Russian literature, things that people don't typically engage in as children. Um, a combination of that and, and language barriers and trying to navigate these dual worlds of American and Armenian um, uh, environments. I, all of that kind of manifested in me having a hard time just connecting with people and just being a person myself. And so 
when I was in my primary school years, I would, you know, my brain would process things really quickly, but I would never output. So for example, if the teacher asked a question, I would know, figure out the answer instantly, but I would be afraid to speak up. And so the teacher would be there saying like, does anyone have an answer? Anyone, anyone after five minutes, you know, maybe people um, might have or, or might not have. And I'm sitting there in the back, just kind of melting on the inside, right? Thinking, I know this. Why am I, why are my, why is my brain not, why is my mouth not connecting to my brain? Why can't I raise my hand? Why am I so afraid of the world? Um, and there was a tipping point for me when I had a very influential teacher that I actually kept in touch with over the last, you know, um, 20, 25 years um, after she and I met when I was a child. But she noticed this about me and she had this gift. She was just um, a, a person who could look into your soul and see this. And she, so she noticed about me that I was sitting there kind of just dying to, to answer. And so she gave me accountability. She created a safe space, but she also pushed me out of my shell. And she noticed that I would always know what to say, and but I wouldn't say it. And so she forced me to stand up and step outside of the classroom and to shout my answer. It was like an incentive where she was like, I want to hear what you have to say, but you have to do it like this. And that what that did was it forced me to understand my own vocal cords and my own voice and my own just human ability to speak and communicate my thoughts. And so I would have to shout, you know, this is, this is the math problem or here's what they, the, they did in ancient Egypt. Um, and at the time I, I was terrified, but because I trusted her, I did it anyway. And now looking back on it, it's interesting because I, I recently saw her earlier this year and then by a just total random sad coincidence, she died a few months after I got to reconnect with her. But when I got there to see her, I was so specifically like excited to tell her, because you made me do this, I can now speak in front of audiences and I teach and I give talks and I, this is, you know, my, li my life is about connecting with other people. And that would not have happened if someone hadn't helped me learn how to be a person. <laughs> And I would not be afraid of talking and, and answering and, and communicating what was in my mind. Her name was Miss Robbins, Jan Robbins, and she changed a lot of lives. It wasn't just mine, but this was a specific thing that I would, has been top of mind for me. That's powerful. Thanks, Miss Robbins. And to having more Miss Robbinses in this world. Thank you so much for sharing that. Who inspires you? Do you have any mentors or people or things or... I think a lot of where I gain inspiration is I like to collect things from different places and I, you know, um, collect inspirations. So part of what inspires me is fellow dreamers. When I travel for recreation, um, it's, I travel with my mother because she taught me this and we chase dreamers. So like when I was 19, we saved up money for years and went to Tahiti because Paul Gauguin lived there. And we were really fascinated by this idea that He's as a you know French painter. He just moved across the world, and you know turned his life upside down. And what was that like? Like for a dream, and I carry it with me every day because you never know when there's that thing that will click inside your mind and help you create a solution or help you create value in the world because you saw all of these different pieces. What are you currently reading? So right now I'm reading The Misfit Economy, which is talking about innovation in weird spaces. This is a really cool book. I'm reading also The Making of Behavioral Economics, Misbehaving. Um, and then I'm reading Amaze, The Art of Creating Magical Experiences by our Ferdinando Buscema. Yeah, he gave us that. So if you cross paths with me, maybe I'll give you one of these books when I finish reading it. Look out for Marina on your travels. You might score a book. <laughs> and those are all three great books. I'm, I'm trying to just cross your path now. Like I'm on my way to Barcelona. Yeah. Yes. I'll mail it to you. <laughs> Marina. So um, <laughs> the the other thing is that I nearly forgot and I keep on forgetting about this new feature in my, my uh, com more and more complicated podcast is that now Paul asked you a question, right? And I need you to please give me a question that I can pass forward to my next, next unknown guest. Oh, I love that. You know what? This is beautiful. I so love this connecting thread. What is something that you can do today or tomorrow, but like right now that will bring delight to somebody, something unexpected, a surprise. Um, it doesn't have to be an item, but what is, what is just something delightful and unexpected that you can do and who can you do it for? I like that. It's not only a question, it's going to be an experience. I would not expect anything less from you. And then finally, Marina, um, where can people find you? Where can they track you, stalk you um, and get hold of you? 
please stalk me and find me. Um, I'm on Twitter at, at the Y lab. Um, Twitter is my public professional. I keep my other social media mostly, um, for pictures of dogs. Um, I, um, have my personal website, marinatertarian.com, uh, and then my podcast, whyservicedesignthinking.com, and then my company website, thewhylab.com. Um, so any of those places and, or you can find me at marina at the You can write me anytime, day or night. I like, I love making you friends. Um, call me if you come out to LA, you know, write me if I'm there, I'll show you around. We'll go She's on there. an adventure. Awesome. And Marina, I just want to say thank you to you for spending this time. I mean, we've been talking about doing this and we finally did it. Yes. I'm super stoked. I I'm really happy. This conversation went into directions that I did not expect. Thank you for your inspiration. Thanks for hanging out with us here in Poland. And it was really a pleasure and an honor. And I'm really looking forward to reconnecting with you sometime soon. Yeah, but yes, we talked about it. I, I will, my offer is open. Werner, thank you so much. Can I just say, I learned so much from you from this. Um, and and <laughs> you create such a safe space. And I'm super duper thankful that uh, you think I'm cool enough for us to be having this really fun conversation and I want to follow up on all these things and hear hear more about your thoughts so yeah we're gonna talk more and I'm blushing my ass off <laughs> good thank you That's so much <laughs> excellent thank you talk to you soon we need a jazz, jazz, Thanks for listening to Block Thinking. You can find more information and the show notes for this episode at www.blockthinking.com. That is blockthinking without the K.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on iTunes or any of your favorite podcast platforms. We thrive on critique, so feel free to leave comments on iTunes or get hold of us directly. Thanks for listening.